If you listened to our special announcement episode last week, you know that Watch Party is growing and that we are releasing a brand new Watch Party podcast about Wheel of Time, hosted by Wheel of Time superfan Ruark Garmston. If you are a fan of fantasy, and we know that you are if you're listening to this podcast, then you're probably going to be watching Amazon's adaptation of The Wheel of Time, premiering in just a few days on November 19th. Watch Party Wheel of Time will be the perfect podcast companion to your viewing experience. We really want to make sure everyone gets a chance to hear this podcast, so we're sharing the first two episodes here in this feed as bonus episodes. If you like what you hear, be sure to head over to the Watch Party Wheel of Time page on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe and leave a rating. All right, stay tuned for Watch Party Wheel of Time. Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark. I'm being joined again by our panel. Say hi, panel. Greg. Hi. DW. DW from Los Angeles, California. David. Hey, what's up, everybody? Axel. Hello. Siobhan. Hey, everybody. And last but not least, Samaria. We're all tied. <laughs> hey. As a Louisiana nice native, one. I take offense. <laughs> and, and, and we're already drawing battle lines before we even get into As the As a college football it. fan, I take offense. <laughs> this is about to join the SEC, so we're gone completely off the rails into sports ball. All right, welcome to our second episode, which is not about sports ball. We're going to cover the trailer, the main trailer from Amazon for Wheel of Time. Uh, it dropped just last week as we're recording this. Everybody's had a time to had the time to watch it a few times, get some ideas in their head and some questions. We're going to play the audio from it right now so that uh, those of you listening on the podcast have some idea what we're talking about. Swear your oath, Moraine Sedai. I swear to speak no word that is not true. To make no weapon with which one person may kill another. And never to use the one power as a weapon. Do you know what Aes Sedai means in the old tongue? Servants of all. It is they who serve the world. I didn't choose this path, but I will follow it. Where next? The two rivers. The old blood runs deep in those mountains. Let's hope it's prepared them for what's coming. The Dark One is waking. But there will be one who can stand against him. And it's one of the five of you. You've fully lost your mind. Your life isn't going to be what you thought. Moraine. What are those? His army is coming. We protect the people we love, no matter the cost. Our enemies are everywhere. They will leave no one standing. You've lost too many people already. I can't lose you. You won't. If we do not stop the Dark One now, the whole world will burn. I can't allow it.
The wheel weaves as the wheel wills. Do you think we'll ever go back? Home. No. Well, that was exciting. Yeah. Very bombastic music. Very, very, very much a, a what you expect from Hollywood for a trailer these days. An epic low tone. But you could see the dark scenes. Yes, that's a vast Which I thought was yes. right. <laughs> like the recent joke of Marvel, lights, camera, action, DC, camera, camera action. action. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also the deep narration of every po- trailer. We were actually talking last time about um, how I'm probably the only person in the Western Hemisphere who's never seen a single episode of Game of Thrones. And I once walked through the living room when Axel was watching it. And I can still say, I still have never actually seen an episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at this point you've seen more wheel of time than you have Game of Thrones is what you're saying. <laughs> that I have seen of Game of Thrones. Yes. And, and that was actually one of the things I was going to bring up about this trailer is that the lighting is really well done. You have a number of characters with dark skin. You can see their faces, even though it's supposed to be nighttime or a candlelit or firelit. So I have high hopes. I'll actually get to see this one. <laughs> That's something I've enjoyed from all of the, 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 everything, the news, the images that have come out so far is, yeah, you can see in the dark in this show. They don't just hope that you have a good enough TV to actually see those images. They make sure that it's actually well lit, and I'm really enjoying that. But beyond the lighting, what are, what are some of your first impressions? Uh, DW, I know you had some impressions. Oh, I, got, I got tons of them. The three of them start right off the bat with, okay, so... Uh, who is the oath to, um, what happens if they break the oath and toward the end of the thing, when she hurls fire, is that breaking the oath? I totally had notes on that as well. Like, yeah, <laughs> that was one of the first things. Yeah, what do they use their magic yeah. for? If they can't use it as a weapon, like, are they spying? Are they divining? Resource yeah. creation? Feeding, curing ills, <laughs> you know, I'm sure. But but then she uses it. She fires it at somebody. Is there a self-defense clause? Do fireballs not count as a weapon? I mean, it, maybe it's not going to kill you, but it's at least going to mess up your day. I can absolutely give you some information on these oaths uh, without really giving anything away. Those three oaths that she took are the three oaths that uh, women take upon um, upon attaining the shawl, is what they call it, when they become Aes Sedai. Uh, they swear them on the oath rod, which you saw there in the trailer, and the oath rod binds whatever oath that you say while holding it to you. Ooh physically binds you to that. That's the, the the light magic that was coming out of it as she spoke. Gotcha. Yes. And and so the three oaths, uh, I, I swear to say no word that is not true. This sets up Aes Sedai as, as known for telling the truth. They cannot lie. But there is a, a saying in world, the truth an Aes Sedai says is not necessarily the truth that you hear. Mm. <laughs> so, I like yeah. that. I like so that. There, there's there's a lot of political maneuvering within that oath that you know you can you can say things that aren't technically a lie. Sounds Vulcan to me. Perception's huge. It, it, it is very Vulcan in many ways. Uh, the other oaths, uh, the one that you guys were were really interested there is I will not make a, I will make no weapon 
they cut that oath off a little bit. It was I will use I will not use the power as a weapon except in the defense the final defense of my life, the life of my warder, or against Shadow Spawn. Okay, okay, that makes much more sense. And he's a Shadow Spawn. The fire is going toward so. And and none of that is really giving away too much of a spoiler because that they're I guarantee they're going to cover that within the first half hour of the show anyway. This is just basic background that if you were somebody who lived in this world, you would already know. Uh, David, yeah. So one of the things that I had on that as well is, um, Moraine seems like she's going to be a conflicted character to me, and them bringing up this oath right up front is that going to be part of her character growth, whether she needs to bend the rules and take this oath to heart or truly, you know, get her goal or achieve her goals by doing it. And again, to bring a star for star Trek reference, all of the captains break the prime directive at least once because they have a reason right. to, so that's going to interest me how this oath affects her character and her development throughout the series. DW, you have some. Do we learn early on? Because uh, one of my questions was, do we learn early on what happens if they break it? Is it an automatic thing? Like, do do they get severed from magic? Is it part of something that's revealed, or do we not even learn about what happens if somebody breaks the oath till later in the books, kind of thing? When I was saying earlier that it physically binds them to that oath, I, I meant that quite literally. They cannot break those oaths. Oh, okay. It is just it is physically impossible. If not, you could tell an Ice Sedai, tell me that that uh, the dress you're wearing is green when they're wearing a blue dress, and they could not do it. Interesting. So they find ways around it, is what I'm getting from you sometimes, at least in the truth-telling part of it, where they might speak a subtlety, that is true, but someone might interpret it differently. So they're expert lawyers and politicians. That is exactly what they are. They, they are beyond lawyers in, in a way. Uh, for one, a, a good example is uh, Moiraine, who, who you all have already seen is, is going to be the main character as, as far as first season goes. Uh, one thing that she will tell people when she's in a strange place and doesn't want them to know that she is Aes Sedai, when they ask her what her name is, she will say, you may call me Alice, or you may call me Mistress Alice. Because she's not outright saying, my name is Mistress Alice. She's saying, this is something you can call me. Hmm. So it gets around that say no word that is not true. Uh, Greg, you have something to say. Yeah, my question, uh, you had mentioned the dark one. The Dark One was created at the creation of the universe. Uh, in a previous, in the last episode, you had mentioned that. What's the purpose then if he's instantly created and then exiled and then shows up? So it's like sort of a Diablos ex machina kind of thing. If I said that he was created at the moment of creation, I think I misspoke. The, the, okay. the Dark One and the Creator both were in existence. And it was the creator making creation. He shoved the dark one outside of creation. Okay, I got you. So this is hitting like a Zoroastrianism duality between the good divine thing and the evil divine thing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so much of, of these books has to do with, with balance. And, and like we talked in the last episode, yin and yang and, and light and dark. And, and yeah, it's, it's, you're going to see that going all through this entire series. 
Um, other thoughts on the trailer? Were, were there any uh, particular scenes in that trailer that really popped out to anyone? So I watched it shortly after finishing Squid Game. And when she said that only one of them is the dragonborn to save the world bit, I was immediately, okay, so during this testing time, they're going to be white take killing them off one by one right no that's the wrong type of series <laughs> but i just kind of <laughs> you know here are tests you failed the test splat i thought of it a little bit differently in that you're going to have this five person fellowship where they've been told that one of them is special but none of them know which one of them it is so each one of their characters is going to handle that differently internally and be like take it on do i run from fear of the fact that i'm it or that somebody else is and how that affects the dynamic of their fellowship and their individual growth oh absolutely i i moan when meant that seriously and the other the other i think angle that you could well see with a character is i don't believe any of this whole shit but it beats mucking out the horse shit back at the farm so sure let's go on this adventure very Luke Skywalker kind of thing. <laughs> kind of a thing. Siobhan, go right ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, like following up on the, the fellowship story, I am a sucker for the whole, you know, gang of friends who love and trust each other against the world. But that kind of story almost inevitably has one person who ends up betraying the rest of the gang, you know, being corrupted or tricked. So you've got, you know, Boromir being corrupted by the ring, or you've got Edmund being tricked by the White Witch or something like that. So so you're expecting to see somebody in in this group get corrupted and, and tricked by somebody to to turn against the group in some way. Exactly. DW, you had something to say earlier? Uh yeah. So one of the questions that popped in my head with that whole segment was so where does the prophecy come from? Who is this something that all of the magic users know? Is it something that one of the magic users specifically has a power in prophecy? Is it something within the spokes of time that every spoke has a chosen one kind of thing? Where does the prophecy come from? Uh, so prophecy in this series uh, comes you know, in the form of more or less a, a person being taken by a voice and, and, you know, I prophesize thus and things spew forth from, um, there are a lot of prophecies that, that predate the series by a very long time. Like I said, in the last episode, we've got, you know, several thousand years of history before we actually get to the point in the books. And there are many, many different prophecies from that history, that we will see that we do see in the books. I don't know that we will see all of those prophecies in the series, uh, but they, they do get actually fairly deep in, in almost biblical ways. Uh, and, and most of the books in the series start and end with quotes from prophecy, various prophecies by various people. Huh? Interesting. Um, any, did anybody have any characters that they, they kind of latched onto that they saw in there that they were like, this person looks interesting. This look, looks like somebody I might, might really be into. Yeah. I really like the, uh, character who's explaining the meaning of Sodai at the beginning. Seems like it's a deep, interesting character that is going to give us a lot of knowledge, but then also be really badass in the end. It's very, uh, Aragorn 
Oh, oh the, the, the gentleman who says uh, Aes Sedai in the old tongue means servant of all. Yes. That, yes. I got that really Aragorn vibe from him, that he's kind of really knowledgeable, really deep, really long-lived, but then also can put some whoop-ass on later on in the show. Did anybody else notice any characters they were interested in? Yeah, Moraine, which is, for me, rare. Like, not the not her being a woman, because, like, most of the time, I, woman characters are my favorite ones, but her being the main character. So, me, I tend to latch on to supporting characters, side characters, people who get a bit of spotlight every now and then, or maybe just once, and then you tend not to really hear from them. Um, but Moraine just seems just very you know, interesting in a way that main characters tend not to be. Um, and her band of kids, especially the boys, which is also different for me because usually male characters, I'm like, eh, you're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing that men are cut off from, you know, this power source, knowing that um, men are, I guess, sidelined in a sense, like, I was like, okay, well, what, what's with these boys with her? Like they're clearly important to her enough to pick them up and take her, you know, take them with her. Um, But why, how, you know, what is it, what is it like being a man in this universe and you've lived long enough. So, you know, that, you know, you don't have access to that magic, but you know, maybe you do when it's dormant, like how, like, what is the psychology of that? You're growing up and I've, I just, I just want to know. Yeah. The fact that one of you is the chosen one, you know, how, how, how big of a mind fuck is that to hear that? If you're just been on, you know, you've been on a farm, you've been, you know, whatever you've been doing, uh, to hear that. And it's like, okay, I'd like to see that, uh, that, that, how that works out for these guys. Yeah. I think that leads to a lot of different reactions to that message and, you know, possibly even leading into Shaban's theory about having one of them turn. Like if one of them thinks that they're the guy, this essentially savior that can turn into a pretty big complex that causes people to do things that would hurt other people. Or potentially worse. If somebody figures out that they're not and the anger that might come from that. Mm hmm. There's your Kylo Ren. I don't feel like I can say anything, but I am loving everything that you guys are saying right now because <laughs> I feel like if I say anything at this point, it is it's we're going to start treading into spoiler territory right away. And and but you guys are all very dead on point with a lot of your thoughts already, and I'm loving it. Well, and and to keep with the the, the um. In watching it just recently, you had us watch it before this episode, and going off of what we talked about last episode, uh, I noticed something I didn't notice the first time around, not knowing that men were cut off from the source, and that any man who was found connected to the source would be hunted. Now I have to wonder if the guy we see in there that's like imprisoned in blades, is that somebody who's found connection to the source? Is that somebody who, you know, we have that with? I, I'm not asking for the answer, but that's now a question in my head, which was not a question before I knew that. Right. It, it makes those those scenes with, with whoever that might be a lot more interesting, doesn't it? Very much so. Yeah. The intrigue is nicely set up there. Yeah. Uh, somebody 
previously had had mentioned to me that they were really interested in that scene with the the girl rising out of the water with with all of the paint on her uh did that uh, strike any of you as in 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 interesting way she was in the teaser trailer was she also a character in the main trailer i haven't gotten familiar enough yet with the characters to be able to necessarily pick that out uh she was actually also in the main trailer yes that looked like an initiation ritual to me. Which I can tell you off the top of my head, I have no idea. <laughs> that is that is something that is entirely new for the series that that is not in the books. I have theories as to what's going on there. I, I have very very good theories as to what going what's going on there, and I think I'll be proved to be right. Uh, but that is not something from the books. So, so we you're are saying already, there wasn't 15 pages of describing that ceremony? There was not 15 pages of describing that ceremony. And I guarantee if that ceremony had been in the book, it would have been 50 pages of description. <laughs> Speaking on ceremonies, all of the trailers have had a lot of ceremonies and ceremonial garb specifically and ceremonial yes. locations. So that tells me that there is going to be a ton of religion in this show in the sense that there are going to be set ceremonies with set garb and set locations and set objects that are followed by the various people in it. Yeah. Um, just I'm thinking about there's, there's a platform that has like two built up sections on either side with stairs leading up. That seems to be a very significant location. Like it appears in both the trees the teaser and the main trailer as everybody's, walking up to it and you know we talked before about how there's all these rooms that are built intentionally built as circles it looked to me like a portal of some kind a gateway Ooh. so i don't know if that's you know where the was it the one darkness was uh imprisoned and maybe they're watching that for him to be released or what but it definitely looked like a gateway to me are, are you talking about the large structure with the the like two very tall towers on either side and the steps leading up the middle. I, I do know what that is. I'm not going to say because that's going to be a, a big revelation when it does happen. And I can't wait to see your faces when it does. <laughs> Ruark, the secret keeper. Yes. <laughs> I am very much the secret keeper. I'm trying to think of ways I can talk about some of these things without, uh, give you a little bit of, of hints without giving everything away. Well, you know, just just to be upfront, the, the, like, I'm going to have nine million and a half questions, and I'm not looking for you to answer every one of them. Uh, because, like, one of the first ones that popped in my head through the whole thing is like, okay, does the trailer contain the dark one? And there's one guy that doesn't seem to have eyes that I'm curious if that's. I don't know that I want to know the answer to that question yet. But that's one of the first thoughts I had is, okay, we see all these shadow spawn bestial and there's one guy with a white face and no eyes in a hood. And I'm like, okay, maybe that's the dark one, but we'll see. He might just be another shadow born. Might be a hierarchy within the system. Well, well let's, let's go ahead and talk about the guy with no eyes. Uh, Siobhan had a great reaction to the guy with no eyes. I believe my exact words were, what the ever shitting fuck was that thing? <laughs> <laughs> how how quaint which was a lovely turn of phrase and i i shared it on some of the the facebook groups that i i 
deal with on a regular basis. And all of the book readers absolutely loved your reaction to that. Uh, what the ever shitting fuck I think is going to become a, a statement within the, the wheel of time <laughs> fandom for sure. So I, I do yes. want to talk about the monsters. <laughs> I've been waiting patiently because I love, mon- I love monsters. And I love imagery of monsters. Yes, absolutely. Um, because the majority of, the army that you see that are obviously, you know, working for, for the, the dark one, they look almost like werewolves maybe with, um, you know, they're hairy and they've got the big teeth. And then you've got this thing that looks like one of those eyeless, nothing but teeth fish that live like 4 million miles under the bottom of the ocean as the gods intended, not, you know, like, not walking around on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the skin tone that's never seen light and has gotten that color because exactly. it's never seen light. Right. <laughs> if light ever saw it, the light would be like, nope. I'm going that away. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to our Greek analogy, I got a real Minotaur vibe off of them. Yeah, same. I got Minotaur. Yeah, I've, 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 I had uh, another friend ask me, "Are are are those things all Minotaurs?" Uh, no, but uh, some might kind of be in a way. Yeah, the vibe I got from the army seemed to be very bestial and in variation, and almost somewhat uh, not what is natural looking anything that like it, it, anything that is against nature forms a shadow spawn kind of thing that that's that's very insightful actually uh you get kind of a marvel deviance kind of vibe from that yeah you know? so like there that. is this trope uh well tro- maybe trope is the wrong word but this idea that um evil cannot create life evil cannot create anything new or original what they can do is corrupt what already exists so demons are corrupted angels orcs are corrupted elves um and i'm kind of curious as to like where exactly these things come from are they people are they animals that have been warped what happens to a corrupted sadai <laughs> Hmm. There's an interesting question for you. He gets hunted down by the others. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> After that. And also that assumes that they get they always get caught. Valid point. Valid point. That is a big assumption. So I I think I'll go ahead and, and give you guys a little bit of background on these creatures because you seem to be really hungry for it. And I can tell you you're going to get this background by the end of the first episode. Um those those large bestial forms that you're seeing are called trollocs. And Trollocs are, they're shadow spawn. They're basically, for lack of a better term, if you cram as just a bunch of random animal DNA into human DNA and see what happens. Um, so they're, they're larger than humans. They're, they're very animalistic. Have a, you, know, you could see animal parts on them. And, and they're the, the, the Dark One's army, more or less. Uh, the you know I I really like the design of them in this show because you you see these large bestial armies in so many of these these shows and it's uh, like the orcs in in Lord of the Rings and you know everybody just continually thinks of orcs and in this one they were like no let's 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 try to distance from that that typical orc and really give them their own 
it, each one its own personality. And I, I think that's really interesting. But it also doesn't feel like a bad CGI job or like it, it feels uh, natural to the world, which is kind of uh, as unnatural as they are. It yeah. seems natural to the world, which is a nice touch and, and definitely gives me hope about the production value of the show. Yeah, speaking on CGI, I can tell from these trailers that there's a lot of practical effects in this yes. way more than what you see recently in most productions, which, which, which is what I was me. just about to bring up is uh, Rafe Judkins, the showrunner for this show. He uh, is trying to get as much done practically in camera as possible as, as is realistic. And that was one of the things he said was with the Trollocs, uh, the only way to, to, really make them truly scary was to try to make them as practically as possible. And, and as we can see, that's already paying off with just your reaction to them in the trailer here. That's Who's brilliant. the puppetry studio involved? Is there, is there a specific puppetry studio? Involved? Um, I don't know about the puppetry studio. I know a lot of the, the visual effects are being done by Cinesite. Um, interesting. Interesting. Um, I know that there was a creature coordinator, announced but i cannot think of who that person is off the top of my head at the moment so we just discussed the the practical effects uh but what do you guys think about the the choreography the the stunts the fighting that you saw so far they seem really well done uh what martial arts there are are advanced and there's a lot of movement and it flows really well. It's lit really well, which is a problem with martial arts sometimes. And the other thing that I noticed is that our two main characters, Moraine and our uh, our favorite uh, headband guy, seem to be the only ones doing much of the fighting. Our fellowship, although you do see them like file, fire an arrow or pull a uh, a knife once in a while, they don't do a lot of fighting in this trailer. So I'm wondering if they're not very skilled at fighting these creatures. I mean, I'm just going to say, if you put a, a, a farm boy up against a, a trained martial arts master, you know, you're going to notice a difference. Well, one of the things I'm loving is that it's not done shaky cam. Too many uh, shows that I've seen lately, in order to increase the tension of the fight scene, will move the camera around a lot to kind of really try and increase that level of tension, which makes you unable to see whether the choreography is good or bad. And I really appreciate fight choreography. I'm, I'm personally a trained martial artist, and I want to see them do it. I, I don't please, please hold the camera still so I can see what's going on. So, so we don't end up with another born idiocy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> see, but that is kind of dependent on the people doing the fighting to be actually good at doing the fighting. Right. Whereas with the shaky cam, oops, it covers a lot. Mm-hmm. It does. But that's the sad part is when you see somebody using shaky cam, when they're filming somebody, you also know is an excellent martial artist. And then you're like angry at them for the fact that, no, I want to see what that person could do. Please stop. Like, just go smack that camera guy. That's one, way, yep. one way or another, it kills the authenticity. And if our showrunner is looking for authentic looking cinema, then he's not going to be doing that sort of thing because you watch it happening it's authentic yeah uh speaking of the fight choreography the uh the the choppy cam does hide a lot thinking of 
Hong Kong films, like Jackie Chan's Hong Kong films, where he's directing. Lots of his fights are medium wide, two shot, and you can see everything that's happening. And you get a real sense of the flow of the choreography. Uh, Shaky Cam is mostly used just to to kind of hide that. You look at, uh, for some reason, I don't know why in uh, one, one of his American movies or a couple of his American movies like with Jackie Chan and uh, uh, Chris Tucker, the fight scenes are chopped up like American action scenes and it ruins it. You've got an artist at work and here you are chopping everything up and let them work. Let the masters work. Yeah. Actually, a, a good source of, of uh, learning about fight scenes and choreography and what's good and what's bad, uh, there's a, a YouTube channel called Corridor Crew. Um, mm. They are a, a studio in L.A., a small studio, but they do a, a lot of fun stuff on YouTube. One of those things is uh, um, stunt artists react. Mm-hmm. And they go through and look at various stunt scenes and how they're filmed and have the stunt artists actually talk about what makes a good stunt scene and how it works. And I really recommend uh, everybody go check that out to, to find out more about that. Yes, I'm, I'm a fan of that one, too. Uh, animators reacting to bad animation or special effects artists reacting to bad special effects. They, they even do some practical. I mean, they, they, I've seen them critique practical special effects as well. So it's not like just because it's practical, it's great. Uh just like, just because it's CGI, it's yeah, not. It's whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I also recommend Quarter Crew. I'll second that. The other thing that I noticed on the fighting is that it seems to be a lot of more Middle East or Eastern styles of fighting as opposed to like Middle Eastern sword play, which you would normally see in a fantasy. And even, even the archery that we see is more of an Eastern style as opposed to what you'd see from medieval times. And so that's, that interests me a lot because it is a large departure from what your standard fantasy would give you. Oh, very much so. Very much so. The, um, to speak to that for a moment, Robert Jordan uh, himself was a huge connoisseur of, of uh, the martial arts um, and, and um, kind of war in general. He, he, really studied a lot of it. And he, a lot of the, the weapons that are used in, in the books and, and will be used in the show. Um, he based off of his own weapon collection. He collected various weapons from all of all different cultures all over the world um, and had them around his house and used a lot of them as inspiration for the weapons being used in the show. And, and they aren't all just the, you know, typical broadsword from England that we see in so many of these fantasy shows. So I'm really excited to see how much of that makes it through the adaptation. Um, actors, were there any actors in there that you guys were already aware of? Uh, Rosamund Pike, obviously. Yeah, that, that's about it. I did. I, I did read the the Vanity Fair article that had come out that was sort of inside baseball and not really. It didn't really have a lot of spoilers. Uh, it mentioned one of the actors from Game of Thrones, but I couldn't tell you who it was. <laughs> it's. Uh, I believe it's. He played Roose Bolton in Game of yes. Thrones. Yes. Um, I know who he's playing in the show, but I think I'll, I'll let that reveal itself in the show. Uh, DW, you have something to say. It was interesting to me that um, they definitely have a cleaned up class. Like we were talking, I think it was last episode, about how this isn't post-apocalyptic. It's, you know, 
post, post, post slash pre-apocalyptic. Um, but one of the things I noted is you don't have the stereotypical medieval like peasant covered in mud. Everybody seems to be pretty well kept together, pretty um, uh, well statured. Uh, there, there's definitely a societal raise um, rather than just having like the peasantry involved in this. And there may be places where that comes into play, but from what we are seeing in the trailer, it's definitely an, uh, a, a level up from your usual group going on a medieval adventure. But yeah, DW, to address your, your comment about uh, the cleanliness factor, uh, there's, there, I've noticed a few comments in the fan community, people saying, you know, they look too clean. It looks, it looks too clean. Why, you know, they need to dirty it up. This is medieval times. And, and I think a lot of the other fans are like, no, this is, this is good because, you know, the, the medieval peasant covered in mud is, is a trope that's been done. And, and as we said, last episode, uh, Robert Jordan himself said that this is pretty much, uh, the 18th century without gunpowder. So, you know, by the 18th century, we, we, did pretty much have some cleanliness to our civilizations. Axel, you have something to say on that? Yeah, so the whole trope of dirty people in the Middle Ages is bullshit that was invented in the 19th century as part of the myth of continual social progress. Um, There was a retroactive period during the Tudor era where um, washing became – it was in the Tudor era and and up into the, like the 17th century um, when you started to get bigger cities and you couldn't get clean water inside large conurbations. But before that, people washed all the time. Like in, in medieval Europe, it was really important because cleanliness was next to godliness and you had lots of clean water. People weren't muddy and clothes weren't muddy. Um, and again, so, and if you're in the, as I said, if you're in a rural environment, it's really easy to wash because there is lots of water. Where people get dirty, stinky, and smelly is in big cities where you need to build complicated aqueducts and blah, 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 and infrastructure, which doesn't tend to happen when the cities are growing, um, which in turn leads to a little bit of history as to why when Europeans showed up in North America, they killed everyone because the European cities at the time were massive disease factories, um, which didn't exist pretty much anywhere else in the world for a whole bunch of reasons that are complicated and the subject for some really interesting podcasts. Um, so what they're doing in the series is more historically accurate than most TV series, in much the same way that in the medieval eras, people didn't wear brown and black all the fucking time. They wore colors. Colors, like Game of Thrones is terrible for that. Um, and don't get me started on leather with studs on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it looks so sexy on the screen. So Axel is in charge of critiquing the costuming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can just critique medievalist stuff, really. Um, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> no, actually, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. I was actually going to say something similar, that, that they weren't as dirty and, and mud-covered as we like to make them out. But you definitely had a lot more uh, interesting things to say to that than I, than I would have. So thank you for bringing that up. Well, and it's also, I mean, there's, there's a, a story that uh, my, my sister-in-law used to always share with me about somebody she was speaking with uh, regarding Game of Thrones. And they said, well, you know, back in the time of Westeros, 
<laughs> and that wasn't my my sister-in-law. That was the person talking to my sister-in-law. But that, that's the thing is a lot of times when we're looking at a fantasy series, people tend to compare it to our history. And this is another, like you from what you told us last time, this is its own universe. It doesn't necessarily need to be representative of our clothing. If they if they in that universe want to wear leather with studs, great. That's their universe. We're not trying to create a, a historical aspect. All those historical points you're making completely valid. Not not disregarding them, but we're talking about a, a, a different universe, mm-hmm. and therefore they can create their own world rules if they want to be. You know, they want that universe to have its set of rules that everybody really knows about cleanliness. Fantastic, as long as they're consistent with it. And if they come across a city that's not, that might be for a reason. And then that becomes another aspect to the story and adds a layer. And what I was looking at in the trailer specifically is the people who come from the sheep herding countryside, their clothing was furs and undyed leathers and the things you would see in a countryside. And the people who were in the city were sewn and leathers that were dyed and really processed clothing because that's exactly what you would see. And in any universe, that's what you'd see because that's reality, right? Where you have civilization, the clothing is actually processed and you purchase it where you don't have civilization. You make it yourself out of the materials that you have in your area. And not everybody is a great seamstress. But uh, even that isn't right because there are so many different sets of factors that can go into any given outcome that you can't say, okay, yeah, so they're in the country, so they have the these, you know, like they're wearing leather. I mean, to a certain extent, like you're a wool farmer, why are you killing the sheep? You should be wearing like wool, right? You you wouldn't have leather. You wouldn't want to use leather. I mean, first off, sheep have pretty thin sheep skin is not great leather it's not it's not particularly hard wearing wool on the other hand is brilliant it's warm it's rugged it's washable it doesn't take a shit like making leather takes a huge amount of resources to turn it into something that's going to fall apart like and i could critique pretty much any assumption of this would be normal everywhere because nothing is I, i i love how much you have already latched on to the wool and and how awesome wool is because there's a character in the series who also will constantly speak about stout two rivers woolens and how they are superior to pretty much anything else out there so i mean it's like wool makes better armor than leather does i i'd like to hear more about this Okay, because what ha- what you do with, with wool, so your basic medieval armor, the thing that most people actually wore would be a thin layer of cloth with a whole bunch of padding on the inside, right? Like, and wool is the pretty much the best because what happens is it's an, it, um, because when you get hit, weapons generally aren't cutting, right? They're smashing. So what you want is something that um, be- that causes bounce. That compresses. That yeah. compresses. Thank you. Yeah, I sometimes lose words. So um, your base layer for armor would be um, thick padding. And then if you had money, you would put a hard layer on the top of it to stop those times when a cutty thing happened. When a cutty thing happened. It's a technical term. Very technical. Cutty thing. Cutty thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and wool, as I said, wool is, wool is really good at bouncing. 
right? It's really good at trapping air. It's good at, you know, you know um, and said so it doesn't fall apart very easily. You can repair it quickly, right? Leather, on the other hand, um, is not very ablated, like is not very compressible, right? So you hit it, the impact, go, the force of impact goes straight through. Um, what leather is better for than wool on the outside is if you're getting cut or if you've got something sharp. But as I said, most oldie worldy weapons, because you don't have great technology to make sharp edges that hold, the main damage is 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 blunt trauma. That does make a lot of sense. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad that you explained that to me because I did not previously know all of that information. And as a caveat to this and anything else I say that maybe wants to go on the text, anything Axel says is um, simplified for the purpose of podcast. There are better podcasts that have all the details and nuances out there. Um, and so people that want to watch them, great. I know about them. Um, I, I, that's not the point of this podcast. <laughs> hit, him up, hit him up in his DMs and you can have that conversation. Or I'll just point you at the podcast that I know about that you care about. Basically, don't argue with me about this because I know that I'm not 100% right, but I'm more right than most people are about, which is generally, I, I know more about most things than most people, but I know less about everything than the people that really know their stuff. <laughs> it's a good way to explain it. Generalizing the geek. You need that on more. a business card. <laughs> I'm not sure it would fit. I know more than you about I, I know more than you about the subject that isn't your specialty. <laughs> All right. So anyway. Yeah. No, Sorry. you're fine. Uh getting back into it, uh I just want to go over some of the main characters with you guys. As we already talked about uh Rosamund Pike. She's playing Warren. Um, kind of our our lead. Uh, you guys had a few um, ideas about her. Go ahead, DW. Well, my first thought on all of it is, again, you know, me and the, the questions that are cropping up that I know are going to be answered in the series, and I'm not necessarily asking you to answer it, but the, the question that cropped up in mine, she has the line in the trailer, I did not choose this path. Great. How does the path get chosen? How do certain people have access to that magic and certain people do not? How is that uh, that that gift given, and especially if it's not chosen, if it finds its own, what's involved in that? So those that's one of the major ones that I'm waiting to see and unveil, uh, unravel, and present itself. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of information relating to that as the show goes on. That that's going to be kind of a a main part of the show in a way. Is you know how how power finds its way to where power lies, as it were. Um, yeah, I wanted to bring up our, uh, the, the next person in the cast as somebody already referred to him. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of people refer to him as this headband guy. Uh, that's, uh, character's name is Lan Mandragoran. Uh, he is the warder of Rosamund Pike's character, Moiraine. Uh, warders are fighting men, essentially, um, the generally known as the best fighters in, in the world. Um, and they bond themselves to an Aes Sedai, uh, sometimes multiple bond to the same Aes Sedai and they protect the Aes Sedai because the Aes Sedai cannot use the power as a weapon. They have this warder with them as a weapon should they need it. 
so yeah, Daniel Henney, he's a, a, a great actor. He was in uh, Hawaii Five-0. He was on Criminal Minds, and now this is his next big thing. Um, this this role is is going to be a fan favorite, I'm sure, and and he's I think going to do a really great job at it. Um, and then I want to cover the the five possible Dragon Reborns that that we saw in the trailer, who are going to be the rest of our our party, as you've already sussed out. Um, we have uh, the girl with the the very large braid. That is Nynaeve. Nynaeve is the village wisdom. Uh, she is slightly older than the rest of the kids. Um, the village wisdom in in these small villages is kind of the the healer, the medicine woman, the the person who tells the weather, things like that. So that that's Nynaeve's role. Uh, the the other girl that we see who was rising out of the the water in in the first trailer, uh, her name is Egwene. Uh, she is Nynaeve's uh, apprentice. Uh, she is of an age with the rest of the 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 boys that are in the group. Um, they all grew up together in in the two rivers. Um, the boys we've got uh, Matt Cawthon, who is the the gentleman who seems to not be very serious at any point in time. And if you look, he, he's kind of dressed like the dude a little bit. Um, he's, he's a jokester. He's a, he's a trickster. He's, he's fun. You know, he, he likes to gamble and, and cuddle women in dark corners of, of taverns and things like that. Um, then we have, uh, uh, the, the tall redheaded gentleman, uh, that is Randall Thor. He's, uh, uh, he's a, sh- a shepherd. Best way to put it. He, he raises sheep. He's just a shepherd. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, and the last person was a, a very, the very large gentleman uh, who is Perrin Ibarra is the character's name, who is the apprentice to the village blacksmith, which makes sense considering his size, um, kind of the gentle giant type character. Um, and I, I, I would like to know what, what you all think of those characters now, knowing a little bit about who they are and what you've seen in, in the trailer. Was the blacksmith the one that drew the sword uh, against the Trolloc? Uh, no, the the person who drew the sword against the Trolloc is not any of them, actually. Okay. Are there any of those characters that sound particularly interesting to any of you? All of them? Yeah. <laughs> In general, it's uh, it's intriguing. You know, who who are these people? Where do they come from? What can they do? What can't they do? Why are they possibly the chosen one? Yeah, there's this part in the trailer where, you know, they're exchanged. Do you think we can ever go home? And then, you know, she says no. And, you know, these are people who have very full lives already. And what, you know, what is it like? What will it be like for them to be completely uprooted from that? And, you know, clearly at least one of them goes into it thinking, oh, well, this is just a one-time thing. I'm going to do this and go home and take it out. And then, you know, they can't and, you know, they can't return to their lives individually, but also, you know, clearly this is something that's going to cause significant upheaval, like irreversibly in their world. And so like, yes, there's home in a personal sense of it, but there's also, there's like home as in, you know, the world that we grew up in is going to be completely unrecognizable and irretrievable. Very astute observation there. Yeah. I'm just really interested in how these people handle it. All right, because that, that that's a bit of a bit of a pressure situation. There's definite stakes. 
and uh, it, to to have the stakes uh, be not only easy to easy to grasp, but also relatable. You know, there, there's a there's a real you know timeliness to it. Uh, the world is changing. It always is changing. <laughs> you know, it's it's timelessness. It's a flat circle. Uh, yeah, there's always change. There's always technological, social change that makes people upset, makes them nervous, makes them want to uh, want to take actions. Uh, let's see what this is going to be like for them. You know, it's uh, it's 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 got some potential to just. Uh, to, to be that allegorical, uh, you know, showcase of, you know, what the human condition really is. Yeah, David. Yeah, and in addition to that, uh, it seems like all of, all five of them have very differing uh, personalities and backgrounds, uh, which generally makes up a really good fellowship because you have the differing opinions and backgrounds that bring everybody together so you can, they can bounce off of each other. If there's differing opinions, it, it creates good conflict too, because usually you have fights when somebody doesn't agree with you or whatever. Um, but then it also goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how each of them is going to respond to this really rough situation they're in and, or the fact that they might be the savior and the end all be all to the situation as well. So it should be good for that. Yeah, I, I like that all of you are kind of already drilling down on this idea of what does it mean to find out that you are the savior, that you are, are, are destined for this big thing? Because Robert Jordan said that was his initial idea for, for writing this book or writing these books was what if somebody came along and told you that you were the chosen one, you know? so many books we see that from kind of from the outside going on but what does that feel like from the inside what 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 does it mean to up upheave your whole entire life to find out that you're you know you're not just somebody you're prophesized to do all of these things and Siobhan you have something to say especially at 20 years old I mean I don't know about you guys but when I was 20 I was a hot mess that would have yeah. completely been overwhelming. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I, I, even at 30, even right now at 43, I'm still a hot mess. I, I, you know, if somebody said, you're the savior of the world, I'd be like, no, get somebody else. You're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at, at least now you know enough to know that it's not right for you. Yes. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think that might be why most saviors are young, because they're too young to know that this is a bad idea. Right, right. <laughs> The ego is still in charge. The, uh, <laughs> they're they're yeah. young enough to buy in. Right. Yes. I, yeah, and I guess the other question with that is how much is it you are destined to save the world versus you are the, you are the person who is capable of saving the world, right. but can you actually do it? Right. Or are you going to die most horribly in the process of trying? <laughs> and when you do, you're dooming everybody else to destruction. <laughs> well, good luck. 
<laughs> to their credit, to their credit, the prophecy was the one who can stand against the Dark One. Not the one who will win. Yeah. Just the one who will be able to stand toe-to-toe. Because also that puts a lot of pressure on the on 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 on, on the on the, 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 the the witch to on the, to figure out who is the actual was it last dragon because it's a dragon is the term she uses right yes she was referring to the last dragon which was uh, at the time of the breaking what which I went over earlier uh, the dragon was the one who sealed away the dark one and caused yeah. the breaking of the world and and doesn't she refer to him to, to doesn't she refer to our hero as being the dragon re- reborn or reincarnated? Uh, that would be correct. Yes. So then the question is: Is was it a literal dragon or is it a figurative dragon? I, I, uh, I'll, I'll come out right now and say there are no literal dragons. Right. The, okay. The, the, the dragon is is a a a ceremonial name no 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 the dragons are yeah. coming they're, they're just a few more books the dragons will be here eventually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as soon as they get more money for the budget yes. right yeah which i mean the, the title of dragon that goes back into british mythology or not british mythology but like uh well i'm not sure how historical but like from the Arthurian legends um uther pendragon Yes, dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's from Welsh because, like, what well, you know, the symbol of Wales is the dragon. I think that is yeah. title for the for the for the king. Exactly. So, and the king and, being pretty much, I think, a war chief rather than somebody who inherited the title because you know his parents happened to be important. You know, at the 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 first episode, I was talking about uh, how a lot of this is based on myth and and history and everything and we haven't even got watched the first episode and you're already figuring out some of the myth and history that has has uh come behind this show so i'm so glad that you are on the show right now axel fantastic so yeah so so again like so we we have this you know how easy is it going to be to determine which of these five is the actual uh chosen one um you know, could she pick the wrong one? And if she does, is that going to doom the world to, you know, to failure as well? Um, well, aren't those really interesting questions? Mm-hmm. How is she going to figure it out? You know, like, I, I'm kind of assuming that there's some kind of prophecy complicating bit that can narrow it down to this time and area. And okay, there were five people born in that time and area. So it's going to be one of them. But now, uh, let's go find out. You know, and do you just plug them in front of Shadow Spawn and see which one survives the longest? <laughs> we wouldn't kill off well, main characters. That's not something a major TV show does. <laughs> no, no, especially not in the fantasy genre. Well, I, I think with that, with Axel actually honestly getting into the background of the show somewhat without even seeing the show yet, I think maybe we should uh, call that an episode and uh, move on to our next episode next week. Or whenever the next episode comes out, uh, it will be our first episode actually responding to the show. Um, so I just want to say, join us when we will be, uh, discussing that episode. Um, and special thanks to Michael and Jen from watch party. They make this all possible and a huge gargantuan thanks to our audio editor, Jordan Rennells. Uh, this has been a production of watch party podcasts. Final word from our guests. Uh, you've just been told that you might be the savior of the world. What is your reply? Panic.
absolute panic. I need to go back to bed. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're thinking of the somebody else. The world is in some serious trouble. No one discussed this with me. <laughs> so where's the contract? <laughs> Show me the money. How 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 much is it worth to you to save the universe? What does save your pay? Is there health benefits? Right? Is this a union position? It'd be a small union, I would think. Yeah, save your union of like... chosen ones. That's, you know. I don't know. I mean, like, how frequently do quest do do quest submissions come up? Right? He's got yeah, a valid right? point. Yeah. All and, right. You know, Good like, night, everybody. <laughs>